21 at night. Um, listened to some Jimmy Buffett, got ready. Uh, I also listened to some Lindsey Buckingham, and I think my love of Lindsey Buckingham and my love of Bill Hader are getting into this confusing intersection in my brain. And I started, I started drawing Bill Hader as Lindsey Buckingham. It's fine, I'm doing great. I'm doing well, it's all good. I love living alone, I actually do. Anyways, so this is Judicial Review, a subsidiary of the Exceedingly Persuasive podcast. And I'm Mackenzie Brennan. I'm an attorney in my day job. I work for an unidentified agency of the New York State government. Um, so I've chose to, chosen to brand it for uh, confidentiality purposes. But we're going through the amendments. Got some previous material on First Amendment free speech, save for anything that touches the realm of hate speech. And I think I kind of expanded that to be um, excluding anything that was super complicated about um, the bounds of free speech. So you can go back and listen to that episode if you are inclined to, to get the full picture. But um, just a quick recap, the way that the Supreme Court for many years now, and um, this is, I hate saying this, I hate that I have to say this. Um, so the Supreme Court no longer, really any federal courts, probably states, were a lost cause longer before this, but um, precedent used to be more binding than it is these days, we'll say that, um, with the increasing politicization of the Supreme Court especially, and then down the line, um, which did start with Robert Bork and Reagan, um, don't let anyone tell you otherwise, um, Precedent is much more easily subverted these days as the courts gain members. Okay, you could argue that FDR, you know, packing the courts was politicized, but nobody was as partisan. So I'll put that qualifier on. Anyways, so there's precedent that is tenuous, like Roe v. Wade, apparently, and Casey. Um, and then there's stuff that is um, apparently, like, not worth touching, and so the categorical treatment of free speech, which is there are certain categories that are supremely protected, like political speech, because that is the very purpose of the First Amendment free speech protection, is that we can criticize the king, goddammit, and anybody of that ilk. Um, so, you know, we got top tier protection, we got middle of the ground protection, middle, middle ground, middle of the road, middle, middling protection. I've already had a couple margaritas in my Hades Town glass. Um, I'm doing great. Middling protection, like advertising speech. Um, there are some you can you can write statutes that limit the scope of advertising, um, but there's some speech that is obviously like you're allowed to advertise and you're allowed to get some leeway. You can say the best in town and. Um, still be protected as like, yeah, yeah, it's hyperbole, um, we're not going to take it down. But if you say, 
this is Canadian law, but I do think it's, so it's not like our constitution, but I think it's funny. The idea of the Red Bull settlement about like, you said it gave us wings. Now you owe $10 to every Canadian who had Red Bull because it didn't actually give them wings. Point being, you can put some limits on advertising speech. It's a middling category, um, but you also have some freedom to play around with it. Then, um, and this is a spectrum, so there are things that in practice kind of fall in these interim categories, but then there's the, the bottom tier of unprotected speech, which is child pornography, um, you know, false imminent threats like fire in a crowded theater when there is no fire. Um, and well, this is a, a good transition here. So there are certain types of speech that in theory, on paper, um, are not protected. But the problem, whereas child pornography, um, not as difficult to define. Uh, it is an underage person involved in, in sexual activity being documented in some form of media. Um, there are certain things that, you know, by definition, fall into that unprotected category. So you can write a law, for example, that says you can't make true threats to kill somebody on the internet. But the muddiness and where it falls into kind of an interim category in practice is the application of that definition. So um, we're gonna come back to this, this threats on the internet example again and again for obvious reasons, but the the muddiness comes out of, okay, but like, not every reply guy who says I should be dead um, is actually truly threatening to kill me in the way that the statute intended. Um, if you liken internet speech to somebody muttering under their breath, I'm going to kill you, which would be one side of the argument. Um, there there's a fine line where you get kind of close to a thought crime, which is crazy. Like that is such a slippery slope to go down if we start penalizing people for being like, oh, I'm gonna kill you. Um, so in a sense, you can liken certain internet threats put in writing, but fired off in a relatively anonymous, relatively quick fire way to that. But then obviously there are some that certainly do fall in the actually threatening, unprotected in practice and definition category. So how do we draw these lines? Um, and there are a number of categories that fall into this um, umbrella of technically unprotected or technically less protected, but really hard to interpret what that means. A lot of the emphasis, and I did talk about this in the prior episode, but a lot of the emphasis in these limited protection categories um, comes down to this really messy business of balancing the specifics of the speech, so what somebody's actual comment was against the value to society, um, just really philosophical and removed. So it's, but like political speech, for example, being the quintessential very valuable. Um, how valuable is it for somebody to say, I'm going to kill you if I say I don't want to see their dick pic? Um, 
I would argue not very. I'll leave that there. We'll say the courts have not taken as strong a stance, per se. But um, harm to society at large, certainly, is something that is balanced against um, the value of the individual speech. Um, but the difficulty with a lot of this is that intent really matters once you get into these gray area categories. Because that's what we're talking about when we talk about somebody threatening to kill someone. Do they intend to do it? And, and there's a little wiggle room there because obviously they don't have to have devised their method and, and like have the weapon in the car and be ready and know where they're going at a certain place, certain time for it to be um, more legitimately intended than someone just being like, oh, I'm gonna kill you. Um, but in either case, and in every case in between, it's hard to know what somebody's thinking and it's even harder to parse that with very little evidence, usually in either direction. Um, and also this whole thought crime thing that are you getting into it being a problem that somebody is thinking that they want someone dead? And when does that become the thought transitioning to materialized intent that empowers this threat with something more than just words. I hope that makes sense. Um, if it doesn't, don't feel bad because the courts don't fully understand this. Uh, I certainly don't because there is no clear line. So I guess uh, let's talk about these different categories that they're not all directly hate speech adjacent, but they are in this limited, less protection, Technically no protection, but depends a lot on how we define what falls into the category um, realm of speech protection. So the first one that we'll touch on is uh, the field of, of defamation, libel, slander. Those are all essentially the same thing. It's just like, which medium? So is it spoken? Is it written? Um, but Essentially, it's, it's saying something bad about somebody in, um, it, you hear a lot in the public setting, and that's usually because of the media uh, element to it. So usually it's like publication or saying it to a large group of people, but technically um, it can be one other person. Um, this is Yak. Yeah, I know. She's defaming me right now. See, spoken word. Don't step on my bill haters. Once you fucking hit Are you real view? She got jealous. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, so, uh, yes, the definition is, is saying it to the public, kind of, but really it's to any recipient who can receive, hear, read, um, this information about somebody else and thus form a negative opinion that impacts their reputation or career. Um, so if I went to Yak's sister, Sleepy Jean, this already doesn't count because I don't think animals count as recipients, but if I was like, Sleepy Jean, Yak murdered somebody last week, 
she, I watched her do it. And I'm consciously picking an example of something that is a crime because it's really easy to prove that that would have a negative impact. Um, there are certain things like, if I said, Sleepy Jean, Yak is a bitch. That's not like, it's, it's kind of similar to the false advertising leniency, right? Cause it's like, I, I don't know, man, that's always a matter of opinion. Um, it's not like objectively a potential employer, for example, or if you're um, a musician, that somebody would be like, mm, I was going to buy this album, but I heard she was a bitch, which like, yes, this objectively happens, but opinion is allowed. Um, whereas if you hear somebody's a murderer, that's a more concrete reason to penalize somebody lying. It, it, it's a more, it's an easier way to prove that it's a lie. Um, there's no definition on the books of what a bitch is, um, but there is of, of a murderer. So I hope that that delineation is, is clear. It doesn't mean that you can't make those charges without something that concretely defined, um, but as with so many things in the law, it's always going to be a balancing of, you know, negative impact, evidence that affects somebody's reputation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's easier to prove that if there's something concrete, like, um, you know, she hit my house with her car or she slapped me. Um, it's easier to prove that that's false. And so on top of that, you can't just say that somebody said something that, that was false to permissibly penalize them under any of these libel, defamation, slander laws. Um, the person speaking it usually has to know it's false. Um, so when I say this to Sleepy Jean about Yak being a murderer, I have to know, um, or at least have no reason to believe um, I mean, it's hard to prove a negative, right? But I have no reason. I know I have no reason to believe that Yak is a murderer. But I'm saying this to Sleepy Jean as if I do, in fact, have concrete reason to believe. So the, the simple way of saying it without all these asterisks of like, oh, I have no reason to think it, is that I know it's false. That I know I'm, I'm saying something that I'm not certain of and making it seem like I'm certain of it. Um, you have to say it to an audience that is probably going to believe it. So if I went up to Sleepy Jean, who is Yak's sister, they shared a womb. They're literal sisters, even though they forget. And every time they're, they're apart for like more than a week, when I bring them back together, they fight and they bite each other. Stupidest thing. You shared a womb. Um, so if I went up to Sleepy Jean and I was like, Sleepy Jean. Yak killed her sister Sleepy Jean. Um, she has no reason to believe that because she she's that cat. She's that. She knows this is not true. Whereas if I said, um, Sleepy Jean, Yak killed Bob Dole. There's no reason that she wouldn't believe that. Um, she has every reason to think that's true. Except that Bob Dole is old, and so maybe natural causes you factor in, whatever. But you see the difference there, that um, there are certain audiences that 
in a practical sense, if this got into a courtroom, it's like, well, of course they know that that didn't happen and nobody intended for them to believe that because Sleepy Jean's right here, you know? So uh, that's another element that is analyzed um, before you can penalize people for this type of speech or arguable type of speech. Um, audience likely to believe it. Oh, and you also have to show harm to the um, the victim of, of the slander, libel, defamation. You have to show some sort of concrete harm to them or their reputation. So this is one of those things where emotional distress, for example, is really hard to show. And on the one hand, that really sucks as somebody who suffers from mental illness and who knows that, God, this can mess with you and ruin just about everything else in your life in a way that's not so easy to trace. Um, I get it. But the fact is that that kind of is circumstantial evidence that in a really practical sense, you got to see that um, if somebody gets fired because their boss has been told that they stole things from the office, for example, versus if somebody can't sleep for months on end and so they end up having to quit their job because they ran out of paid leave and they weren't on good terms with folks and then they didn't get hired again because they didn't have a good recommendation. It's harder to trace. Um, and oftentimes, somebody who gets treatment for mental health, there's, it's not like these issues for which you need treatment arise solely because of a circumstantial thing. Sometimes they do, and sometimes it's the catalyst for treatment. But the fact is that, you know, for example, for me in the past, when, when a death or a breakup has sent me into a tailspin, it's not like I was already somebody who didn't have depression, you know, um, or anxiety or whatever. So the causation piece is something that is, when you think about the burdens of proof in court, um, you know, the, the innocent until proven guilty in a criminal context. And, and even in civil, it's, it's a preponderance of evidence, which it's not nothing. Uh, there's a presumption in favor of the person being accused, which tends to be a very good thing in the criminal justice system. We like that. Um, but for things like this, when it's showing harm and the harm is largely emotional, we haven't quite figured out a great way. I don't know. A great way to do that yet um, without sacrificing some of the fundamentals of our system. I'm not saying it can't be done, but um, I understand why it's tricky. So usually it's better, um, it's an easier case to make if you can show some sort of concrete harm um, from this type of speech. Uh, also, this is why you can't bring any defamation libel slander case on behalf of a dead person, so like their spouse or their estate, um, whereas a lot of other civil causes of action, criminal, you know, whatevers, can be brought even if the person has died. You can't harm the reputation of a dead person in the same way that they will suffer going forward, so the courts have decided you can't do that. Um, so that's kind of a fun caveat on um, when and how you can limit that speech. So if, oh, I don't even want to say that. 
two, not my cats, because my cats will never die. Mm. <laughs> if two totally different people named Jeep and Yonk, I, if um, I said to Jeep that Yonk was a murderer, but Yonk had already passed away, um, Yonk's estate couldn't sue me or anything because their reputation couldn't be affected. They're, they're dead. Anyways. Uh, da, 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 da. What's next? What is next? Oh, oh, I, and I should say with that whole death piece of it that it's because it's in large part because you have to show in showing this harm as with many, if not all, civil cases, there has to be some showing of damages. So that's part of why the evidence for harm is so tough to quantify in a lot of those cases, because it's like, how do you put a dollar amount on something that's not a firing, not medical treatment that happens solely because of this injury, um, not like lost wages because you took time off strictly because of this, um, stuff like that, that a lot of the reason why they're tied together is because you need to have both proof of damages and a way to put, even if it's a punitive, like punishment damage situation, it helps to be able to have a number of days, have a number of visits, visits to the doctor, um, dollars, obviously, etc., etc. So, our next category of limited protection, very hard to define speech, obscenity. Which, uh, I think it was Justice Stewart who said, it was either a, it was about obscenity, but in relation to porn, I think, that I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. So that, right there, we're creating a minefield, because um, you can't define it, but you can decide if it's Great. This is great guidance for courts going forward. Um, one of the best examples of this is in a, a prior case about the Vietnam War and a protester who had worn, a, I think, a leather jacket that said, like, fuck the draft on it on the steps of a, a public courthouse and I think had been arrested under some indecency or public disturbance statute. So. There are two types of challenges um, to laws on, on the grounds of constitutionality. And so there's what's called a facial challenge, um, which is essentially this law, as it's written, applied to anybody and everybody who would be subject to this law. This law is unconstitutional on its face. Um, so that's a, a broad unconstitutionality. Um, and then there's unconstitutional as applied, which is like, yeah, this text is fine, I get arguably fine. Um, it can be applied in ways that are within the constitutional bounds, but as applied to this person. So in this case, this public disturbance law was probably fine. Um, there are certain things or indecency, I don't know what the actual charge was, but this was an as applied sort of challenge that it's like, yeah, you can have a law on the books that says that people can't create a disturbance and whatever. 
But as applied to this person, it's unconstitutional because you arrested somebody under this law for wearing a jacket that said, fuck the draft. And that's a political opinion. So now we have it intersecting with this other category of speech that like, yes, you can infringe a little bit on obscenity, but here we have somebody expressing their viewpoint. And so this is where that balancing comes into play, that the, the value the court decided of the, the speech itself, the individual speech and the content of it, especially in context, you, you know, it, it's at a governmental building in public. It's probably by somebody affected by this issue. Um, that that far outweighs the risk of, of, I guess, somebody going to the courthouse seeing the word fuck in the 70s. Um, but there you also see that something like obscenity as a category is just about as flexible and subjective and malleable with time as Justice Stewart's uh, description would suggest, which is like, I can't define it but I know it as it applies right now when I see it. Um, because think about now, would there ever be a case? Well, I don't know, we're all over the place in terms of regressive and progressive, I don't know. But it's unlikely that somebody wearing a jacket with the word fuck on it would face the same kind of legal repercussions that they did during the Vietnam War. Because as a society, we've we've moved a little beyond that point of being offended by the F word. Mm. Which brings me to another example of um, this obscenity, um, the limits of this obscenity bar slash limited protection, if it's in the right context, et cetera, et cetera. So George Carlin, the uh, late great comedian had a famous bit about the seven dirty words that you can't say on television. And he, of course, aired this on the radio and on many other platforms, but um, I believe the FCC challenged it and there was some backlash to him being censored. So the legal response to that was that you can restrict this type of speech and specifically his monologue in time, place, and manner. So you can't restrict the content. Um, and this kind of circles back to our reasoning for protecting political speech and viewpoint related. You gotta protect different viewpoints in the marketplace of ideas, but what we can do is limit the way and the venue in which certain things, especially obscenity, because it's kind of practical, right? Um, kids are less likely to be watching cable TV at one in the morning than they are to be watching like PBS at noon, you know? So that was kind of the balance that they struck there and that has stayed in place going forward, that you can restrict this type of speech in time. So is it an hour when kids are in school, if it's something that would be potentially offensive, if it's heard place, 
in public access versus you have to pay so you know what you're getting into and you know when you're turning on this channel. Uh, it's not just going to filter through the airwaves and unwittingly reach your child. And manner. Is it on a, and this kind of overlaps with the public piece, is it on a public billboard um, or do you have to seek it out? Do you have to pay for access? Do you have to look for this channel? So I think that that makes sense. It's very practical, especially for something like obscenity, which is so judgment and subjective based value assessment. It, if it were up to me, I think that words, they're words. They are sounds that our mouth makes because we have learned that when our mouth does certain things in this language, they mean certain things. Um, have sex and fuck mean the same thing. I, I don't know, man. Say whatever you like, if it were up to me. Um, we've got three groups that are related. There's fighting words, incitement, and true threats. These are all pretty similar. Uh, fighting words is... It, it relates to hate speech, so we'll talk a little bit more about it when we get deep into hate speech. But um, it's it's not been used a lot in recent years. The big case was Chaplinsky, which was the, like, you're a goddamn racketeer and a fascist. Um, and they were arrested for saying that in public, which, um, again, quaint. Um, It's essentially like saying something so hateful that it is likely to incite the other person in a one-on-one -on -one context to fight you because you've called them a racketeer and a fascist. Um, it, it sounds a lot like it could be hate speech, um, but we have different rules that apply to that because apparently there are carve-outs when it's about a certain immutable group of people. conservative courts, man. Um, and then there's a distinction with incitement, because incitement versus um, fighting words, which is kind of like a one-on-one -on -one, um, verbal threat of fisticuffs, um, incitement is like to a large group of people, which with social media, you do see as I think it arguably has happened in the last calendar year um, from our former president. So the difference between fighting words and incitement is the reach of that message to the audience. And so with incitement, um, it's got to be a big group of people. It has to be rallying them to violence. And then in the same way that so many of these categories have like the audience has to be likely to receive it. In fact, there's a difference between incitement to an audience that's riled up and ready to go and the heckler's veto, which is somebody who disagrees with the audience, who gets more protection because really they're more likely to be attacked than rally the audience to violence because the audience disagrees with them and so you want to protect this individual dissenter more, if you follow. Um, in any case, uh, it's it's ripe for abuse on social media in a weird way because it could be impossible to keep track of how many people are 
making inciting comments. And in the same way that true threats, and so now we'll jump to true threats, um, is difficult to define, it's really, really tough when it comes down to intent on these platforms that are essentially stream of consciousness thoughts. So how can you say that somebody intended when they're just like firing every word vomit thing that crosses their mind, like Trump, um, onto a, a verbal brain platform? It's, there are a lot of potential repercussions in a psychosocial, um, you know, policy slippery slope sense if you create thought crimes out of people expressing negative sentiments when they have a lot of followers, you know? I don't at all mean to defend the likes of Trump, and it kind of sounds like I am, but I, I'm setting out the bounds of why it's not so easy to just be like, oh, lock them all up, um, which part of me would love to do. Uh, luckily or not, a lot of these platforms are private. So when we talked way back in the last episode, in the beginning of the last episode, about how the free speech clause in the First Amendment said, the government shall not infringe on this. Really, that doesn't apply to Twitter, but the illegality of that, if somebody did inspire crimes, and so thus tracing the criminal liability back, um, the platform is not governmental, so you can't hold the platform accountable for if they censor you under the First Amendment, but it doesn't mean that you can't be held criminally responsible for what comes out of what you say in that setting. It's like uh, if you were to write something in chalk on the sidewalk. It, it's not uh, like the sidewalk wouldn't get destroyed because you used it for something bad. But if you used it for something bad and something bad came of it, just because it was like some private home's sidewalk doesn't mean that you can't be penalized. Does that kind of help elucidate it? Because um, it, it's a difficult line. You, On the one hand, it's like, ah, these are private platforms, so it's not First Amendment violation, but you still can be held accountable. It's kind of tricky. Um, but it's less about the platform and more about the consequences in that sense. So that, yeah, true threats is, is the last of those semi-protected categories. Hard to define. Um, and here's something that sucks. So the true threats on social media pickle. And, I, you know, the way that I framed it initially was reply guys being assholes. And you scroll through the comments on any YouTube video, even the non-controversial ones. Um on a number of tweets and past a certain number of views, you get a lot of threatening, if not directly threat-based uh, comments and content in response. So that, unfortunately, is a consideration. And again, I get where they're coming from. So I can't even say that it's wrong because practicality is practical, but it sucks that things like clogging the judicial system, it's a factor in whether we make things prohibited. 
because it's a practicality factor. So when the first court in any jurisdiction, um, and as you move up the food chain, so the first federal court in this circuit or the first uh, Supreme Court case that addresses this specific issue, whatever, um, one thing that they consider when they're creating precedent that will then bind everybody below them and everybody trying to obey the law going forward is if we make this the line, if we draw the legality line here, is it going to overwhelm our judicial resources? It's a worthy consideration because um, we simply only have so many judges, we only have so many courts. As somebody who worked as a court attorney, hearing cases, writing decisions, conferencing cases, fielding emails, scheduling, you, you hit a saturation point. Um, and without significantly more taxpayer dollars and thus votes to add those, et cetera, et cetera, this is what happens when you pay your taxes. I hate it too, but careful of falling into that conservative trap. Taxes do something. Um, so like without significantly more resources, there's a limit to what the system can handle. But fuck man, doesn't that suck that that is a consideration in, in how far our rights extend? It almost should be like an asterisk that is added onto the decision as a significant caveat, but like, this is not okay. This is a true threat. It's illegal, but hey, we can't enforce this right now. So we're just going to put a hold on sentencing um, anything based on this, but it does not fall within First Amendment protection. I don't know. That is the solution I came up with right now, as I am like two and a half margaritas in, but I think it might work. Um, bottom line, it really sucks that judicial capacity is openly considered as how we interpret our constitution. <laughs> um, all right, so let's get to the main attraction, which is hate speech. And this was the subject of a lot of the questions that I got about First Amendment free speech related topics, because I think we all appreciate that not only are the lines very unclear, um, you saw with the fighting words category, one-on-one um, -on -one words to instigate fighting are not okay, nor are they okay if you're speaking to a large crowd in a way that instigates violence, but apparently hate speech is protected as long as it's not a hate crime. And I will say, this is a decision that came out of a conservative court, um, I believe it was the Rehnquist court, so largely G.W. Bush um, appointees. No, 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 I'm sorry, H.W., uh, the senior, who tends to be less um, abhorrent, but also was buddies with Reagan, so you gotta... Yes, there are Reagan people on the court. Um, yeah. Apart from not agreeing with the, the general concept that can be distilled out of this holding, which is that hate speech is not per se, um, that it is protected, rather, that hate speech is protected apparently by the First Amendment, um, even in a world where these very limited protection categories um, remove things like 
threats, sincere threats from the realm of protection. Hate speech doesn't fall in that category. Um, beyond that, I also think it's a really, yeah, can you not scratch my couch? That worked. Um, I also think it's a really confusing, um, inapplicable in practice and far reaching gymnastic kind of decision. Um, basically, so there's this case called Wisconsin RAV versus Mitchell in 1993. And the line that they drew to make this uh, weird distinction was between hate speech and hate crimes, which, okay, I can define this in a very academic sense. Um, I'm gonna still follow it, still ratify it. Um, hate crimes are criminal actions inspired. Francis Yak, what did I say? Thank you. Um, there's like a criminal action in and of itself that is inspired by this hateful animus. Um, so if you smash the windows of somebody's car because they're black, or if you uh, spray paint something on the window of a synagogue and it's like anti-Semitic, you know, it's not just like tagging a building, but that it's inspired by hatred for the group represented by or that the member is a member of. There's a crime and there's hatred. Put them together, it's bad news. Um, hate speech, especially uh, as the court made the distinction, but I do understand kind of what they're saying on paper, is strictly expressing or thinking that negative um, thing. So it would be like, the sentiment of hating Jews or hating blacks or hating women or hating gays, whatever. Um, yes, one is a thought and one is accompanied by a crime. So that is the line that they conceptually drew and why they said that hate speech is essentially, you prohibit that, it's basically a thought crime. So it's like a 1984 world. Oh my God, yes, I switched to one. Ready to bring this tequila party down to a sad nap. That time of night. Because um, we're talking about R.A.V.V. Mitchell, so. So, yeah, this thought crime thing was their rationale. At least their professed rationale. I think that um, it's no secret, especially seeing where this, uh, the door opened by Reagan and, and the court composition following him and then into the Trump regime. Like, we know where this has gone. Uh, so it's really easy to see the, like, where things were going when they let this ball roll. Um, and easy now to see, kind of like I talked in, in the first part of this episode, last episode, whatever, about Europe, 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 being less protective of um, hate speech and being more wary of bigoted groups in large part because of the Nazi legacy, because I think that there is a first person um, like visualizing and also sense of accountability for how easily these things snowball and the risk of 
allowing a platform to propaganda that then can become large-scale violence and can be so easily exploited. So I think a lot of us are seeing that now in a way that has um, always been there, but rarely ever been so clear in, like, certainly in my lifetime, um, probably a couple generations before me. Uh, yeah. So this is what everybody was afraid of, and yet R.E.V. versus Mitchell kind of allowed us to get here. Um, but let's backtrack and talk about the case a little bit. Um, the actual case was, there's like a penalty enhancement statute. So there, there actually was a crime. I think they, they like lit a cross on fire on a black family's lawn, which was a very, very common way of expressing hate. Um, and really bigoted, like so clearly race-related hatred. Um, you can argue that it was, I don't know, just a crime or just an accident or whatever, but it was specifically this penalty enhancement that um, the majority opinion likened to a thought crime. That, like, on top of this, we're kind of separating the crime from the hate speech piece. The hate speech piece is just the penalty enhancement if you can point to an animus on top of the crime, which we kind of separated out. Already we're penalizing this, but we're going to add an additional sentence just for the hate speech piece, because we're just, we're adding an additional sentence for the hate. Hate thought, hate speech, hate animus. It's kind of a weird way to do it, because you could just have a hate crime statute and kind of avoid this whole problem, but who wouldn't know that you had to do it that way before this case? So they, they're they just looking at this penalty enhancement statute. Since they selected the victim due to race, now it's on the table. Also, like, the brazenness of somebody who did this was subject to, uh, like, already either pleaded guilty for the crime or did their time, whatever, was convicted. And then they're like, no, damn it, I don't like this penalty enhancement statute because I want to be allowed to hate. Which, obviously, they're not going to say it that way, but the audacity of hate, to paraphrase Obama's book title, The Audacity of Hope, <laughs> in a darker way. I'm into my wine now, so see. Yak, I know you're worked up, but that's hate speech. So, speak on. So, um, yeah, the court used this, this thought crime rationale that you can't have a statute that's just about hateful speech or thought or expression without a crime piece. Admittedly, the way that the statutes were composed was um, about as ripe as the statutory composition could have been for this kind of decision. So maybe there's some comfort to be taken in that, that um, to have an additional penalty just for the hate is probably not the best way to do it, but whatever. Um, they said that there's nothing to stop over breadth of that type of thing. So like we could be penalizing everybody for hate. I don't know. It seems pretty easy to distinguish when you're penalizing for hate based on 
race or gender, sexual orientation or nationality, all these immutable characteristics is usually the, the legal category. Um, just call it that, immutable characteristics. You can even list them like gender expression, orientation, gender, race, nationality, like I just did. Um, so I don't really think the danger for overbreadth is compelling. But apparently they did. The white conservative dudes on the court were worried. Cool, cool, cool. Um, they said that it was content-based. So remember when I went through what you can and can't restrict. So you can restrict time, place, and manner, but you can't restrict based on like viewpoint and content. That they were saying that essentially the bigotry of hate speech is that viewpoint that you can't restrict. Um, again, I would argue that hate based on immutable characteristics, again, so a lot of the reason that that the court will have for not wanting to do certain things is like, is it easy to define this? Are courts going to be able to apply this in future? Is law enforcement going to be able to? Are state courts, are lawmakers drafting policy, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, you got to pull it together. You're playing with, she's playing with scissors. She is literally playing with scissors. Look at this cat. So bad. Um, but that's a huge practical consideration is, is um, how are we going to be able to define this going forward? Uh, I think it's really easy to carve out the content that is, like, I don't think it's viewpoint related if it's hate speech. And I think it's easy to define hate speech. It's not a political opinion, but ah, see, you see how it has now become a political opinion and how scary that is and how slippery slope it is because like racist white nationalist is a political opinion now and calling Antifa a terrorist group is a political opinion now. And that gets really close to neo-Nazi regimes and McCarthyism and like, so I think this is really, you look at these like insidious starts to, and obviously it's slippery slope when it's blown out of proportion, it's a fallacy. Like you can't predict that something's gonna blow out of hand just because you can visualize a path where it will. But this is so, um, it's so foreseeable and likely. And people put up the warnings. And so the dissent in RAV versus Mitchell um, they said that, let's see, I thought they did a good job. What was it? Pro-regulating hate speech. Okay. So they said, yeah, they said it's similar to defamation or fighting words that you're allowed to restrict those sorts of things. Um, and that allowing hate speech and protecting hate speech above other considerations doesn't promote the First Amendment values. Um, and I think that kind of connects to what I was saying about um, it's not really a content 
viewpoint-based protection that you're infringing on by saying you shouldn't hate people based on immutable characteristics. And it's also not hard to define. It's not what the First Amendment in protecting political viewpoints, etc., was intended to protect. Um, yes, they were racist. Yes, they were sexist and, and homophobic. But um, when looking at the values behind the amendment and the value that the founders placed in progress, even in a social sense, um, you really can't make that argument. Um, it's a story for another day about original intent and what was actually intended, but oh boy, I'll do a whole. Um, yeah, they, they, they also mentioned that there are things that were placed in an unprotected category and that the court had been comfortable placing there. And so we do that. Um, why is this not something, you know, child porn is something that goes in this category, threatening speech with no societal value, like fire in a crowded theater when there's no fire, that can go in an unprotected category, but this can't. Um, so like, yeah, we, we take protection away from things that are solely dangerous and have no societal value. This isn't, okay. Um, it, they also pointed to other values of the First Amendment, like the marketplace of ideas, which is this very idealistic, wonderful, Pollyanna-esque, um, just like feed information and facts to everybody, and then they make their informed decision from there. Um, this doesn't really elicit that, because the reaction is that the target is hurt and silenced. So it actually infringes on that marketplace of ideas by squelching out the expression and representation of people in those categories. Um, and then they also cited the Equal Protection Clause, which shows some constitutional textual concern for marginalized groups being treated in a different way. So if we have a whole amendment, um, clause of an amendment, that is intended to protect against the marginalization of groups who may already be subject to that, why allow and make an argument that the Constitution should allow speech that is strictly intended to target them? It seems counterintuitive. I think they're great arguments. Um, I'm biased, but am I biased or am I convinced by them and thus in support of them, you know. Hmm. Oh, and another great um, practical legal argument that was made is that motive, so getting in somebody's head and the thoughts that they intended, that's always part of sentencing. And I think that's a great point. So I think about like premeditation in uh, a murder case, that isn't that sentencing enhancement a thought crime that we we get in their head and allow that to impact sentencing all the goddamn time um and that the individual harm and harm to society from bias um that's that goes on the balancing scale a lot in sentencing so boy how did they not win <laughs> because bigotry is strong. And old straight white men raised conservatively um, and comfortable in that world, wealthy, 
there's no reason to question it unless they really have some impulse to self-examine. Um, so I'm inclined, we're hitting an hour here, I'm inclined to hit the social media piece in another episode because we actually just got a ruling today on that Snapchat case about fuck cheer, fuck softball, fuck everything. Um, that is allowed under the First Amendment. Yay, conservative court, but yay. Um, that's very good. Um, a cheerleader, I guess, had posted something on Snapchat and like some mom told on her um, for saying fuck cheer and she got suspended, which is insane. Um, so I think that was a very correct ruling, good for them. Glad to see them moderating themselves a little bit. Um, I'm sure with consciousness of, of how the world slash country will see them, specifically in the court in general, if they fulfill our worst fears of them just being a monster court. That said, they did rule against gay couples adopting uh, last week, so also fuck them. Also, they're not trying that hard. Um, in any case, yeah, there are a lot of new social media concerns coming up with free speech every day. Maybe it doesn't fully merit its own episode. Um, I can throw a sentence in that... Uh, actually, it, it does conceptually, because there's some messy stuff about how money influences. I, I just learned recently about the amount of dollars that the anti-vax industry puts into YouTube ads to get their movies promoted as the suggested or queued up videos for certain ones that thus will then autoplay. And that is such like, people don't even realize they're being influenced by that sort of thing if something plays next in your queue. And that creates those rabbit holes of ideology that people fall into. And if somebody can just pay, again, you get that issue of private platforms and some drawbacks, significant drawbacks, if, if you were to take that out of private control. But um, the money that's allowed to be put into that in a factual setting, um by biased, completely unvetted groups with just a bunch of money to throw out the issue, we're going to fuck up the minds of the whole generation just because we don't want to keep that in check. Um, so that's really scary and bad. Um, there, there's a lot to talk about with, with Reagan repealing the Fairness Doctrine, um, which necessitated equal time when covering difficult political issues and a lot has really gone off the rails since that. Um, that plus Citizens United allowing more corporate money because corporations are people and corporations are allowed to have free speech as well because they're people who speak with their money. Um, so they can freely give all the money they want no holds barred, I'm oversimplifying, but essentially that that was the impact of Citizens United was like taking more bars off of corporations funding, and sometimes like hiding their funding of politicians and political causes and unlimited amounts of money into it because 
they have the right to speak, and that is the intent of the First Amendment. For a party that loves to preach original intent, um, the corporation-based arguments about speech and religion just, like, floor me, because find that for me. Again, original intent is its own conversation, because there's a lot of evidence that they did not intend for you to use their values. They wanted progress. Um, but it's just so, so funny that this very new school of thought that was very conservative because it came from Scalia. Um, so yeah, like virtually my lifetime um, is like, no, 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 no. The First Amendment means corporations as people. Yes. Professionalism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Loves it. In any case, um, thank you guys for sticking out this long. I really hope this made sense. Um, it's always hard to bridge that gap between generations of legalese and things that a lot of us can't even justify in the legal world, but have to at least try to understand to tackle them. Um, so I hope you see it that way too. But if, if there's anything that needs clarification, I hope you know where to find me. If you don't, um, I am at mkzjoybrennan on Instagram. I'm get me to a nunnery on Twitter, but the two is the number two. Um, you can also email me. I am mkzbrennan at gmail. And, uh, yeah, also hit me up here. Um, I would love to help out because God knows this is, it's a mess, but I really think that it helps to understand it and that that's the only way that we're going to make a difference going forward. Great. I'm going to go to bed with my two murderer cats. So you can tell everyone I said that. Alright, be good, be safe, be happy. Woo!